Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Brickyard Composition. I think this might be eight or nine. I don't even know. But welcome to. Yeah, we lost track. Uh, Welcome to uh, the episode of Brickyard Composition where we're going to talk about conceptual art. Richard uh, decided on that one, I think, I think last week. So, well, so you wanted we to talk about theory. And I, I thought, well, if we're talking about theory, let's talk about conceptual art, because we spoke about realism last week. Yeah. And I, we always talk about the champ. So as soon as you say theory, and I think conceptual yeah. art, I think Duchamp. Duchamp and his attack on retinal art. Yeah. Remember, he would call retinal art uh, like anything that was just painted to please the eye. And, and yeah. we were kind of talking about that with realism last week. Like, what's a painting? What's a sculpture without faith, belief that it has some kind of power over us other than mm-hmm. that it's decor or simply looks like a tree or a car? David, I know you like paintings of cars. Uh, <laughs> I <don't know>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, to kind of get the ball rolling, I'd say that just as I feel there's no art that's really realistic, um, all art is conceptual. So yes. there's always a concept behind it. If there isn't a concept behind what we're looking at, then what we're looking at is either a replica or a decorative element. Yeah. You know? which, I mean, I, which can be done well. That, can be, that is part of visual culture. It's totally legitimate. But the flowers that you see on wallpaper are not the flowers that you see in a painting, or at least they shouldn't be. Yeah, I mean, this is what we were getting on with the art versus craft, too, right? You can have masters of artistic media, you know, which is fine. But we were sort of defining capital A art as like, well, how I defined it is philosophy by other means. But, you know, there's a thought process behind it, then it's art and that. Which is, I mean, like, and I brought up the point that as a photographer, I take photos I don't consider art, but I still want to take them, and there's nothing wrong with that. And then there's some photos I make that are art, yeah. So so I would agree with you that anything that we're sort of qualifying as art sh- has a concept behind it, at least how I think we all have come to define art, right? Right. So, so what is conceptual art then, Richard? Well, I think conceptual art tends to be heavy on the yeah. on the concept. Um, yeah. Would you Were agree, you... David? Uh, yes, and you know sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it isn't. I mean, Duchamp, of course, is the the sort of proto king of conceptual art in terms of really kind of severing the concept from the idea that the object itself was quote unquote artistic. Uh, I think that that is a very important distinction to make. I think Magritte makes it. I think to a certain degree, the Surrealists made it. I think Man Ray made it. Uh, However, I also think that it's possible to hang too much on the concept and not enough on the actual work. Um, I sort of draw the line, I think, at, um, you know, the kind of return to found objects, for example, is something that I think you know, it's kind of been done. I don't know that we need to see it again. A Dan and yogurt lid left in a gallery after a while. I don't need to, you know, read. But, <laughs> but see, but see, but David, I'd say I'd say the same thing about impressionism, right? Like, 
And this goes back to that Kandinsky quote, efforts uh, to revive art principles of the past will result in art that resembles a stillborn child. Like, uh-huh. right, like I don't see, an, I don't need to see another impressionist. But to me, no, to, it, right, like I don't know that it's any different to me. Well, here's the the distinction that I would make about the current gallery world. And this isn't a judgment against you know, either conceptualism or impressionism. If you're seeing an impressionist painting in a gallery or in a museum, it's because an impressionist artist did it. And those people lived and worked at a certain time. There are some modern painters who use impressionism as an idiom. I don't know too many that are taken very seriously. You can find um, the sort of found object or the, well, here's, you know, a piece of garbage, but because I thought so much about it, it's become important. A banana just sold for, what, $200,000 for an art? Yeah. That's still, the the conceptual stuff is still kicking around. The impressionist stuff is not. If you don't want to see an impressionist painting, it's very easy to not do so. But walk into almost any gallery or art fair and you've got conceptualism coming out of your ears. So, I mean, but I'd, I'd say uh, relative to when conceptualism sort of started, which was, you know, late 50s, really, right? Like, that it really came into its own. I mean, relative to that time, things like Impressionism, I think, outstayed their welcome, right? Like, obviously, Impressionism is yeah. way older than conceptual art, as we're defining it. And I think for people listening who don't really know, conceptual art, it's like what Richard said, it's just... It's almost where it's so heavy on the concept that um, no sort of mastery of craft is needed, I guess is how we define it in general. Um, But yeah, I mean, I guess my point is, I think Impressionism is like, especially outstayed its welcome. You know, you still had Impressionists pumping out Impressionist work when everyone was, when I, I didn't need to see another one. And for me, it was, you know, it's in the art history is like another yoga yeah, and you've said the same thing about abstract expressionism yeah and i like abex but i don't want to see another drip painting and you still see those like you still see a lot of like drip paintings by people like i see neo pollock stuff you know so, so i guess I, my question is does everything have to be novel i but I this is this is why I like I like that question for conceptual because I think that's sort of the wellspring, right? Like the concept of the idea behind it has to be a novel. Because then even if you're relying on old techniques, it's gonna be anachronistic. Right? right. Like do do you see what I'm saying? Like if if there's a novel concept, a novel philosophy, a novel idea, this is the problem with conceptual art. It, the stuff you're describing, David, I agree. It's like bad because it's rehashing the same concept. But I don't think it's bad because there isn't like traditional technique needed in it, right? I mean, I think this stuff was sort of in, you know, these. it's just because those questions have been made effectively already, right? Like uh, Duchamp made it or uh, Kosuth, you know, made it already. I mean, uh, for me, I, I really kind of give a, a certain primacy to the object, and I feel that conceptualism, if you look at Duchamp's conceptualism, like the, the bicycle wheel mounted on the, the stool, mm-hmm. for instance, there's still something really visual about that that just works. It actually does suggest an, uh, an art object, some construction went into it. 
I think um, conceptualism, when it fails for me, it really fails at that level. It fails to convince me as an object. It's just snorf or, you know, heaps of rubble or whatever. And then somebody tells me why it's important. There, there's a, there is one artist, and um, I maybe, uh, Dave, you know the, the artist's name. I'm blanking on it for a moment. But he did actually very beautiful pieces uh, that are the heaps of candy that are in the corners of rooms and museums. Oh, yeah. Oh, who is that? I know exactly what you're talking about. I believe it's an Italian artist, but yeah. I might be mistaken. And he was active in the, the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Lars Oldenburg? No, no, no. no. This, this, let me see. Felix mm-hmm. Gonzalez Torres was the artist. Yes. So, yeah, and, and basically, um, I think... Uh, he died of AIDS, if I'm not mistaken, and I believe his partner did as well. And the candy was supposed to be taken by the visitor. Uh, each person was was sort of encouraged to take a piece of candy with them until there was nothing left. And the idea was that it's sort of like your days are numbered, the, the good moments you have with a person are sort of numbered. There's a finite kind of amount of happiness you can expect from a relationship, particularly if you are suffering from something like AIDS. And so it really is kind of a concept of, it kind of engages you with the idea of mortality, but also of enjoyment of momentary existence in a way. Mm-hmm. And they're also quite, they're pretty, you know, they're really actually beautiful. You don't think of candy as being attractive, but it is. Candy is actually a very artistic form of food. It has to be. That's part of kind of, you know, how it's displayed and why it's fun. And I think that, you know, that that's the type of conceptual art that seems on the face of it to be very simple. And you're like, well, what did he do? He dumped some bags of candy in the corner of a room. Who cares? But those that that type of conceptual art, I think, works because there's a real beauty and a sense of structure to how the concept is being illustrated. And that's what I think you need in order for work of that nature to be successful. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's a lot about presentation. See, see that's interesting, because for me, what makes, like, there's a trade-off where I, I sacrifice aesthetic from the difficulty and interestingness and the novel aspect of the concept, right? For me, there's this trade-off where you can almost completely get rid of aesthetic if the underlying thought process is profound enough. I'll completely forgive it and not care about aesthetic. But for me, there's this sort of direct trade-off, which yeah. is very difficult. So for me, if I am interested by the idea behind it, I can for- forgive no aesthetic because it got me to sit there and think about something that I hadn't thought about before. And for yeah. me, that is infinitely more valuable personally than looking at anything I like to look at. Right? <laughs> thinking about something I want to think about to me is more important than looking at something I want to look at. And so it's great to have artwork that's both. Right. But I, th- I think the like sometimes shocking nature of conceptual art that it doesn't have necessarily the aesthetic does get you thinking more like why, why the hell would they do this? Right. Where I think aesthetic can lull us into not thinking sometimes, uh-huh. which I, I see as sort of uh, see as a problem. I remember... This guy I used to work with, I started a video production company with him and dropped out of college because of it. 
Um, he didn't like abstract art. And I was obsessed with Circles in a Circle by Kandinsky. And I was trying to explain it to him. And he, I was like explaining the meaning of it. And he's like, that's, that's dumb. Like, I don't think that's pointless. And he pointed to his son, you know, who's pretty young at the time. And he goes, um, look at Josh. You think he could walk up and understand the meaning of this painting? And then he was arguing with me that Norman Rockwell was like one of the greatest artists ever. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Rockwell is cool, but I don't know if I would argue he's <laughs> yeah, the best yeah. ever. I, well, I mean, this guy went on to make a, a Broadway musical. So like, you know, he's he likes sort of kitschy, whatever. But like, um, I, I was like thinking, I was standing there and I remember thinking like, well, some of my favorite novels, your son couldn't understand or unpack. Right. And they're my favorite novels because they get me to think and they take a long time. Right. And so I guess that was the moment where I sort of realized, no, it's maybe a good thing. You're like arguing for this painting that maybe it takes a little more thought. Yeah. Than... The Kandinsky is you're talking about the circles within circles the circle. in a circle. The one that's yeah. at Philly. Yeah. 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 We, we looked at it together when we went mm -hmm. to the museum. Yeah. It's exquisitely painted, though. Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, I but, mean, I, but I mean, I'm just I know, sort of... I know, I hear what you're saying that you are willing to forgive the work if it's so high in conceptual quality. Yeah. Well, can you give Can you give a an example of a work that you feel does not have an aesthetic quality but does have a conceptual quality that makes it relevant? Like one. Off the top of, I mean, usually they're in. Um, you know what? I Our like first Manzoni. episode, David wasn't there for it, but we actually started Brickyard Composition with <laughs> the comedian and the, the banana, banana ducking yeah. through the wall. And we started off bashing it because we said it was just a repeat found object. How dumb. But then yeah. as we analyzed it and the, the timing and, and the environment and the title and uh, we actually ended up kind of liking it. <laughs> We're like, what? but it, it is poorly done. I mean, it is just a banana duct tape to a wall. Yeah. It's not even a real ready. It's an assisted ready made. And the assist is pretty poor. So yeah, <laughs> I guess that one. But, but no, I think like I think good examples are people like Manzoni. Like a lot of what he did didn't have any aesthetic value. It was very high concept, but at the time he did a really good job. I think better than like the young British artists. Yes, you know, I agree. He did a better job of getting us to question what is art and what is the artist's relationship with that. So he started signing people and declared them as his art. And he was one of the first people to really do this on a big scale until the culminated in uh, Soap du, du Monde the um, base of the earth um mm. the where he it's like it's if you haven't seen it it's just sort of this sculpture it's just this giant slab that says upside down base of the earth on it and he just he signed it and he said okay the earth is my the, i'm claiming the whole earth is my piece of art because it's upside down so it's the base of the world and right. i like i love that it's not aesthetic it's just a slab right that's it but for me when you think about when that came in art it he wasn't just even repeating himself like the young British artists who are always yeah. associated with the conceptual, but he was one upping himself and pushing and pushing. And then he did, um, uh, you know, the canned, canned shit. 
um, that he sold for the price of gold, you know, trying to like really elevate like, oh, it's great because I'm the artist and I say this, which really he got us to evaluate art through just such great absurdism that I really like. Someone did it now. I wouldn't like it from the points that we both agree on earlier. But I think he's a great example of someone in his time doing something that was just really good concept, pushing his own concepts. And there wasn't really aesthetic. Like. Do you think that those pieces still have the same power? For example, without thinking about the monetary value of particular work, say like Fountain, for example, mm -hmm. would you still want it in your personal collection? I mean, it's, it's a thing that like... It, these aren't things that can be evaluated in a deconstructionist approach, right? Like these are things that are hinged to their concept or their story. And so I don't know, like for me, that like, because the story and the context is part of the... So you would still want Fountain even if you couldn't ever sell it? Yeah, but because I understand because what it is. Because of the story. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because okay. of what it represents, right? Okay. Like, because the artwork isn't the object exactly right like and this is this is i think where people can where people get confused the artwork is the concept this goes to what do they call it when uh, like instructions to make a work by artists didn't yoko ono do a bunch of this she she did and so did Saul wet of course yeah um, where they give instructions yeah we actually had a silhouette at um the layman Loeb museum which is the art museum at vassar college and the students put it together based on his instructions. And yeah. it was very striking. Um, I think they had it installed for about, oh gosh, maybe two years while I was there. And then they did, disassembled it. Um, the interesting thing is that, of course, uh, the nature of Lewitt's uh, instructions means that when they mounted that work again, it will not look at all like what they came up with. Because, you know, it's sort of like put 36 nails in the wall and wrap wire around it and yeah. see what that looks like. So that could be almost any number of things. Um, I mean, I'm thinking also of like Carl Andre and his sequences of bricks. Uh, there was a huge flap in London, I think in the maybe late 70s, early 1980s, um, when the Tate acquired one of Carl Andre's sculpture. And everybody and their brother said, it's just a bunch of bricks. How can you, you know, justify a bunch of bricks? It's a bunch of bricks on a floor, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I've seen actually some of Carl Andre's work at the Museum of Modern Art. And I think that there is actually a very elegant kind of sense of proportion and construction to them. They're not just piles of bricks. Um, you couldn't just rush out and do it yourself. Uh, there was a critic, Robert Hughes, who said that the impact of Andre's work um, was all about context. He said you put um, Michelangelo's sculptures in a parking lot, they're still Michelangelo's. You put Carl Andre's sculptures in a parking lot, they are just bricks. I actually don't think that's the case. I mean, I think that the museum does provide a context in which we are observing this under house rules. But I think Hughes was wrong. I think the concept behind Andre's work survives in the parking lot as well. I, I think this is interesting. There's um, 
in photography, right? Because photography, I was explaining how uh, the um, sort of the movement to make photography more than just sort of like representationalism uh, was sort of killed by Ansel Adams and his crew, right? And so photography never sort of feels like there's like art, like all other art and photography, you know, which is still like has these, you know, right. old notions of purity. And there's this uh, contemporary photographer, Justine Varga, I think is her name. And everyone in the photography world was so pissed off because you can imagine like conceptual art is like over accepted in the art world now. I mean, you were hinting on this and I agree. I think there's a lot of crappy conceptual art. It's like oh. I think a lot of people, artists are mistaking weird for weird sake as concept. And that's not good um, because, like I said, you have to have an idea. Otherwise, it's really oh. just poorly done, whatever. Um, well, Justine Varga she saw her um, grandmother sitting at a table testing pens, I guess. And her grandmother's getting old, and she, her, her grandmother's just scribbling with different pens, seeing how they wrote. And she oh. was thinking about making a portrait of her grandmother, and she thought, like, well, there's something about people that isn't their physical appearance that changes. And she wanted to capture that moment. So she took a sheet of large format film, which is obviously you don't normally want to expose it to light because... When you develop it, it'll just turn pure black, right? Because it's negative. But she had her grandmother just scribble on this negative mm -hmm. instead. And then she developed it, developed the negative, and all these scratches are in the emulsion, and all these marks are made in it. And she developed it and submitted that and won a, a, a $20,000 or euro or pound, I forget, 20000 grant for it, for a portrait award wow. and and the photography world was really upset everyone's butts were really hurt over that and i really like what she did like i as a photographer i'm like she used a photographic a photosensitive material and everyone got really upset about it but there's things like that where you're like no i think it stands it doesn't just look like you know it's not like anyone will scratch a negative or you know i could present my my stuff. Anyway, it just sort of reminded me of that. She's she's an interesting one to look up. But if you want to see people getting really angry about it, look up Justine Varga and articles about that on any photography blog. And every photographer who knows better will tell you uh, how enraged he is that she won that twenty thousand dollars. There was a artist um, operating back in the early part of the twentieth century. Around 1910, 19th, who did portraits of people um, as skyscrapers. Like it would be, you know, portrait of Mrs. William Arnold or whoever she was, but it would be a building that was supposed to kind of capture huh. how imposing she was or something. Wait, did the building look like a person or was the <laughs> building just a stand in for the portrait? was just a stand-in for the person. Ah, uh, okay. Because he, he I, I don't know if the story was that he felt he couldn't really draw the human figure very well, but he had, been, had some study as an architectural draftsman, so he <laughs> used that instead. Yeah. But I remember seeing a show that incorporated some of his works at the um, American Folk Art Museum back in the day when there was an American Folk Art Museum, as opposed to, you know, Mama's New Cafe or whatever it uh, and I remember really being struck with the idea that, you know, here's something, and you, you 
labeling it. You know, the, 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 the name of the sitter or whatever you want to call it is part of the, the work. Yeah. But it's a building. <laughs> it's, still, it's still a portrait of somebody else, you know. And I thought, you know, they were very well done. And there was just something about the concept that really seemed interesting to me because in a way he was almost getting at that 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 kind of sense of crisis that I think a lot of Lacanian writing is about, where, you know, it's like the man who mistook his wife for a hat. You've heard the, the title of that book, right? So it's almost like this idea of, you know, how do we perceive people? What if we did see each other as buildings? You know, what if I saw you as a bunch of bananas, duct taped to the wall or whatever? Um, <laughs> does that mean that I'm not seeing you? Or does it just mean that visually something is taking the place of what we normally Yeah, expect. I mean, presently I see Dave as a kettlebell and a cup of coffee, so. Yeah. Did you see that video? Wasn't that sweet? Did you see? Was that surprising? Dave's been doing kept... some lunch, lunchtime exercises on his Instagram story, yeah, and he's he's simultaneously drinking a cup of coffee while <laughs> doing, doing like, Russian bear lifts or whatever. Yeah. What are they called? Russian kettlebells, yeah. Kettlebells, yeah. But... Yeah, that's that's me. I, <laughs> portrait, <laughs> my I'm like I'm getting into surrealist lifting, not just surrealist photography. It's like my new thing. Um, performance oh. art. <laughs> um, you know, you gotta live. We were talking about um, yeah, the surrealists really lived their role, and I'm like, I'm not doing a good enough job being actually a surrealist. Um, that's how you validate your conceptual art. You have to make it be a insane. Yeah, you have to, make it you have to actually be insane. Uh, we've talked about conceptualism that has been interesting or valid, but can you think of an example that just doesn't work for you where the concept actually isn't driving the material? I think I try to forget those ones. I see a ton of stuff like that that I throw away, like you said, where I'm like, oh, cool, another like another blank canvas yeah, like on a wall. Like, cool. Honestly, for me, a lot of what what people call realism bores me to death. Like I've seen enough figurative paintings with really drab muted colors and like loose brushwork. It, 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 I don't care about the human figure just to see another human figure. I see too many people as it is. <laughs> well, I guess not with the quarantine. I, I Maybe, like we said, we'll yearn for social activity again. But right now, I'm thoroughly fucking enjoying it. <laughs> 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 or landscapes. Or still, I mean, I can really enjoy those subjects when they're exquisitely painted and have something like you were saying about the Hudson River School, where they're they're like touching on the sublime or... Uh, the trilogy where they're showing the rise and fall of a civilization or even a still life that has an allegorical kind of meaning to it. Like, I can get into it, but uh, I don't even know that that's present in a lot of the realism I see these days. And I do agree with you, all art is conceptual, even if the concept is simply to paint this shit as lifelike as possible. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I think a lot of it is that that I see, and that is an example for me of conceptual. Now, I'm talking about realism, but all art's conceptual, and the right. concept there doesn't live up. It doesn't add up to anything. Yeah. 
that I mean, that's that's like the other side of the coin of what I was saying is if you're going to have no technical acumen, I guess, in your creation, the yeah. concept has to make up for all that. Right. Right. Um, but then there's sort of this other side that all the technical acumen in the world can't make up for no concept at all either. Right. right. There's like this other right. side of the coin, which is what you're hitting on. And I think those are right. the two very important things. There's this delicate balance of like you need concept concept. You can be a little lighter on the concept if you're good enough on the execution. Right. And, we'll for- and we'll forgive it because you're presenting maybe a simple concept, but in a way that no one else could present it. Yeah, or... Go ahead, finish, Dave, and then I'll... No, no, I just... I mean, mean, uh, I I was trying to think of a very proficient painter who appeared to have no... Or very... I wouldn't say no, but um, something that's not built around the idea of a concept. I think, to me, uh, an artist that's very difficult to appreciate, at least just from the examples we have in American museums, you really have to go to, to England to see work that feels a little bit more... Um, grounded somehow would be Gainsborough. Um, I've often thought that a lot of the things that people say about John Singer Sargent are in fact true of Gainsborough much more than they are of Sargent. I think Sargent, early in his career at least, when he was painting the the first full-length portraits, was perfectly capable of really kind of nailing the sitter in a a very... uh, satirical and very acidic way. A lot of his paintings are very venomous. And I don't sense that in Gainsborough. Um, maybe, you know, in some sense, I know less about Gainsborough sitters than I do sergeants. Um, but I've always thought to myself that, you know, his most celebrated works to me are the least interesting ones and that he's painting powder and not people. They're very cosmetic. And I think, you know, to a certain degree, they're also very, they're very elegant. They're they, you know, are sort of Fragonard turned to the blue range, if you will. Um, a Fragonard. Yeah, I mean, Fragonard is another one that I'm thinking of where there's a Boucher. lot of... Ugh. There's a lot of verve to it. There's a lot of... Um, I mean, I think Fragonard was a brilliant colorist. Uh, I think he really could design an image in a way that's very charming, but there's no... I just, you know, I wonder, is there anything really going on in painting? like that and i feel that there's art that where you have tremendous technique you know technique by the bucket full yeah no concept per se it's like there's a pretty girl on a swing and yes i get it that it's supposed to be licentious and she's lost her shoe and it's a symbol of her you know genitalia and etc and so forth but beyond that i'm just kind of like well it's sort of like a dirty postcard isn't it <laughs> that's that you've just described most photography yeah well you just defined rococo <laughs> right. Rococo was about pleasure. And in some ways, I feel the missing part of Rococo is the audience that actually consumed the paintings or moved throughout yeah. those rooms. The rooms were refined and bright and la di da, but the conversation that those people were having, you know, up, 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 up right into the time of the French Revolution, you're dealing with absolute monarchism. You're dealing with a court that's full of vipers. You're dealing with a tremendous amount of decadence. You're dealing with ideas of libertarianism and hedonism and a crisis really in Catholicism um, in France at that time. And so with all the, the, the pit of snakes that was actually life in those palaces is offset by this kind of idea that 
here's a world of total extravagance and elegance. It was like the factory before the factory. Yeah, exactly. Crazy. I never thought of it that way, which I want to add. The only Rococo artist I like is Watteau. Watteau is amazing. Yes, I like Watteau a lot. But I mean, Dangerous Liaisons, the film version of that really captures the venomous quality that is taking place in those sort of gorgeous apartments. And I think the the missing part of it is really that where we're missing the fact that, you know, the king of France is breathing down your neck every time you look at that Fragonard, because that Fragonard was installed in the boudoir of his mistress. And she wasn't exactly a walk in the park either. Yeah. So. Okay. Yeah, I, I agree. I think a lot of Rococo art is, is light on the concept and heavy on the technique. They're oh, ama- amazing draftsmen. A- if you look at their drawings, they're, they're unbelievable draftsmen. And Do you yeah. want to give a little I just more get background sick for- on their color palette. It's all, it's all like... Pastry. Icing. Huh? Oh, yeah. What did you call it? Pastry. Pastry. Yeah, it's icing yeah. on the cake. It's just like way too much icing on the cake. Do you want to give a look, quick like synopsis of Rococo art uh, oh, for the audience? Uh, yeah, just in case someone. Yeah. Go ahead. Sure. Um, so right. the Rococo is basically the the sort of the end point, if you will, of the Baroque movement. The Baroque itself stems from. Uh, mannerism and from certain uh, kind of elaborations on Renaissance detail as buildings grew larger, public buildings in particular grew larger. They sought to break up facades and interiors in ways to make um, them maybe a little bit more graceful seeming in terms of proportion. Uh, There was a kind of an interest in you know, again, with the Renaissance, there was an interest in Greek and Roman mythology, but that really comes into its own during the Baroque period. Uh, Cupid is everywhere in the Baroque. The Rococo is the Baroque turned up to 99. It's sort of like not even 10. We're going we're gonna to take it the whole way. And the shell-like and grotto-like and nautical forms that kind of infuse the Baroque uh, become completely kind of just absolutely overdone in a certain sense. And yeah, visually, uh, I mean, I I find a lot of the Rococo very ingenious. It's like watching people build some sort of an amazing puzzle or a house of cards. And there's a sense of kind of lightness and fluency to it that I think is very uh, extraordinary. I think a lot of it ties into the concept of music during that time period. Yeah. You, hear, uh, you hear Baroque or Rococo music yeah. played in a Baroque or Rococo interior, and it's almost like watching the music kind of evaporate into the forms of the, the architecture around you. So I actually think there are many, many great, great works of Rococo art and architecture, but you can also kind of understand why neoclassicism came along because people were getting sick of it. It was like being force-fed a wedding cake through your eyeballs every minute of the day. <laughs> and they're just like, no, no, we need to clear this out. We want severity. We want dignity. We want lightness of effect. We want elegance. We want the superfluous to go away. We want real life. <laughs> yeah, basically. So, um, so, yeah, so for people who might not be completely clear on that, um, uh, you know, how those terms work, that's basically what it is. Neoclassism. Yeah is a reaction against the excesses of the Rococo. I mean, but going back to like, I guess, what's considered more like conceptual art, like what we 
what people consider conceptual art. I think it. I think it's hard for me to point out bad examples because I just they don't stay right. Like, and I and we were talking about this with the comedian. I think a lot of conceptual art takes a little more time, right? The deeper right. the concept. When's the last time a really great deep novel you had a good assessment of it right after reading it? Like. Honestly, it takes some time to to chew the cud, as it were, I think, right? Like, I think really good stuff, it takes some time to think about. Fortunately, with novels or literature, you're spending time reading it, so already it's sort of baked in, whereas right. you don't have it baked into the viewing of conceptual art. But, right, but anything that's sort of deeper takes some time to assess. Um, yeah, so I don't know that I, I, I've seen plenty. It just like nothing springs to mind because I think I want to forget it. I think I'm just like, yeah, like I said, another. Oh, cool. Another empty canvas. Like, right. Um, but. Uh, yeah, so so I don't know, but it, it, you hit on um, music. You were talking about like um, the Baroque, Baroque music. And it is funny how Baroque music sort of seemed to mimic the Baroque period in art and the repetition in Baroque music and the overlays and how it's sort of devoid of almost story to me, but just well, as what do built you guys this... think of John Cage? I was going to bet exactly. Yep. And conceptual art. Some of John Cage is really fun to listen to if yeah. you're bored out of your mind, like and he's <laughs> telling stories and the anecdotes are really good. And but uh -huh. I don't know. I, I have to be really bored. I I like John Cage because there had to be a John Cage in music, right? Like John Cage is the John Cage of music. I don't know if that makes sense, but like I I think music sort of has a similar affliction, maybe as photography, where everyone's caught up so much in technique, right? Okay, let's think about how if you go to school, if you're in high school and you're into music. Right, you're vetted to just do orchestra or band and recreate things, right? And be as technically proficient as possible. And ask any high school uh, music teacher uh, if they've, you know, get your students to improv musically and create on their own. And most yeah. of the students are going to like crap themselves the first time. They are because we don't teach them to do that. Right. Right. It's only technical proficiency in music. And we that's still like sort of is the thing now. Right. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I really like Cage because. Composing is hard. Right. Like and this goes back to the whole I can play a bunch of Beatles songs on the guitar, but I can't write them. Right. Like and we get confused about that. And so. I think John Cage does that to the extreme. And I don't want another person doing like 30 minutes of silence because like, OK, great, like, cool. Um, you know, like we don't need other people throwing pianos down staircases, you know, but I I like Cage because I think I think mm -hmm. music in general and music education still sort of suffers from the affliction of being identified with the technique. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Does that make sense? I don't know. Yeah, no, I see. I see what you're getting at. I, I mean, I think the the interesting thing about you know Cage's silence is that it isn't because if you're really listening to it the way you're supposed to listen to it, which is in a concert hall, 
you become aware of all the ambient noise of the audience. What yeah. you're really hearing is the audience. You're hearing coughing. You're hearing, you know, the rattling of a program. You're hearing people shifting in their seats. You're hearing somebody whisper, you know, <laughs> which, but that was his point. That was like, exactly. that was exactly. I mean, you hear all the stuff that you, you don't hear when you're there listening to, you know, a, a concerto by yeah. Schoenberg, for example, uh, which is abstract and of course, very conceptual in its own way. Um, yeah, no, I think John, I, I like John Cage's work. And I think uh, the, the thing is, is that, you know, doubling back a bit, I think John Cage is actually legitimately an excellent composer. Yeah. Well, he's and, he's perfectly capable of writing music that follows quote unquote the rules. It, which which drives on the point because composition is actually harder than technical reproduction, I think, or it's at least a completely different thing. And so for someone who is capable of doing that thing to arrive there is interesting to me also, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, I remember. Uh, reading the story of uh, the anniversary of of that of that piece, um, they re tried to recreate it. Uh, you know, um, uh, what's the official title again for the silence? The what's, oh, um, what's the title of the piece? It's thirty minutes of silence, right, or something? Is it? Let me let me see. I don't remember how long. So, for those of you who don't know, John Cage has this you know sort of famous piece where it's just quote silence. Uh, for an extended period of time. But his whole concept there was you're listening to all these sort of things that are that you wouldn't hear normally, like like what David said, the rustling, the people going like, what the crap are we here for? What are we doing? Um, and it's uh, it's called four minutes and 33 seconds. Oh, it's four minutes. Why would uh, why was I thinking 30 minutes is way too long? Um, but let for OK, so named let, after the to line. get back to art. Yeah. Let oh me, yeah, sorry. Go ahead, Dave. Did you want to finish your thoughts? Oh there? yeah, I was just gonna say. So uh, I guess for the anniversary of that, they, I I remember reading that they wanted to recreate it, so they recreated it, and then there was some like noise or a plane that went by, so they stopped it and started again. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, this is outdoors. Like this is too loud. We need to stop because it interrupted the piece. And it's funny that to honor the piece, they totally missed the point, which was to pay attention to those things that are interrupting in those in-between right. things. Anyway, it just was funny to me. I'm like, you guys missed the point. So let uh, me ask you this, maybe yeah. to wrap up. Um, but in music, it's a tradition for composers to compose the piece and have other talented musicians perform it with them. Uh, yeah. they're, they're, they have a workshop, if it were. you know. Uh, yeah. And how do you feel about artists who they're the director they have the concept but then hire a team to execute the work back to the factory is it, is it different in art than music i mean wasn't this it, like this has been present in art for a long time though is having other artists do like little elements that you're weaker at right back when it was i mean isn't that present in a lot of art yeah, I'm just asking you how you yeah. feel about it. I, I mean, mean like I, Rubens I think, had a huge workshop, but yeah. when I look at Rubens' paintings, I don't think, oh, I bet Rubens only painted the face. Yeah, <laughs> like, they're amazing. I, I think, again, it comes back to if the concept's good enough, I don't care, right? Like, at a certain point, um, if, the, if the concept is high level enough, then who cares who does it, right? If the composition's good enough, 
I think in the case of a workshop where other people are actually making the art, it's almost like the the idea, you know, we're turning back to music. The conductor is conducting an orchestra. He has to oversee the players. He has to work with them one-on-one and as a group in order to get a certain sound. Um, we, you know, when we think about the word synthetic, we usually think it just means fake. Synthetic doesn't mean fake. It means it, it's something that is achieved through a synthesis. So a synthetic work of art is a work of art in which many different things are brought together into an overriding totality. Rubens had to be on top of all of his artists in order to create one of those big canvases. He had to look at every square inch of that thing, and he had to say, no, 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 you have to change this. No, this should be a different color blue. Great, I like how you did this. I want you to do it over here. You know what, the heck with it. Let me just fix the hand of this girl myself, whatever it was. I don't know enough about him to know what the actual technique was, but that is the thing that makes those paintings work. The fact that there is a single aesthetic that's been imposed and that the people working with Rubens trusted him they took direction because he was able to give it. And uh-huh. the, the visual effect is consistent. Now, sure. there may be paintings of the same period where you had a, you know different people working on it. And maybe the painter wasn't on top of it. And maybe those paintings, they haven't survived the way Rubens' canvases have as major works of art. Because you're like, well, the face is done brilliantly because that was the, you know, the, the actual artist. And then you can see his students completed the rest of the figure. And it looks rather drab and wooden and... You know, why does it have three legs? You know? uh, there, there is a, a rather ghastly house um, up in um, uh, the Hudson River Valley where uh, the gentleman hired a rather, to my mind, a rather mediocre Italian artist to come in and do murals all over the walls. And it was, uh, this was the 20th century, mid-20th century, and the artist was famous. He had painted uh, Queen Elizabeth's portrait, the current Queen Elizabeth's portrait for the the Royal Portrait Gallery. He wasn't a terrible painter, but he wasn't a great one either. Uh, His work I I found rather facile, but he came in and he coated an entire room with these rather, you know, blowsy looking murals. And he had other people working on it, you know, and he was evidently not a very well-liked person. And at some point, the director of staff of the the client said to the artist, look, you're, you're living here, you've practically moved in, you're bossing people around, you're trying to get too chummy with the client, we don't like you, get out of here, go away, get lost. And they painted the artist screaming his head off in the forest with the butler sort of giving him the boot. Now that's an artist who didn't have control over his own craftsman, and it's probably why those paintings look so sketchy, because he worked on the bits that he cared about and left other people to do it, and the other people were like, well, screw this guy. So what you got there was actually this weird thing where they snuck in a really nasty picture of him. So, <laughs> That's awesome. That's you, hilarious. I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. I've been actually thinking about this because I'm uh, sort of collaborating with my mom because um, she does crochet really like. You oh. recruited her for your workshop. Yeah, I recruited her for my workshop. She, she does these huge Afghans, like full-size blankets. So we're talking, what, uh, 50 by 40-inch blankets, right? Oh. Um, where she crochets in colors as pixels, like hooks them in. So it's not like a cross-stitch or anything. She actually, like, changes the color with her hook 
and uses tons of colors of yarn and usually does pictures of people's pets. It's called pet gans. Um, and I wanted, I've wanted her to do some of my photos for a long time. It just has this interesting level of kitsch, but talking about concept also, there's always this sort of argument about like fidelity and the highest pixel count and all this stuff in photography. How do you print? How do you shoot? Right? So it seems to me like lo-fi printing in in Afghan in, in crochet seems like a really fun way to call them like photo prints. Right. Um, but she's doing all the hard work. I'm like sending her like old photos of mine. And um, yeah, but you were the conceptual genius. Yeah. But yeah, that's the, the funny thing. Is, you know, so she'll give me something like, oh, what do you help me pick yarn colors for this? You know, so I'm like looking at all these lists of yarn colors doing back and forth with my mom. Yeah, and you think about this, it's like, wow, a lot of people have been like, you need to do more of these. They've seen photos of the first one that we did. We've only done one so far. And great feedback, but it feels like I'm cheating because I'm like, I just sent my mom a picture. And she's like, okay, son. And, uh, but it is really cool, and it's not something she would have done otherwise. So hey, I think... Hey. Don't yeah. feel guilty. Andy Warhol's mom helped him with a lot of his fashion yeah. illustrations. So. Yeah. Was she sitting Not there the like doing time. stamps of Not Coke bottles? Time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so again, I think it just comes back to if the quality of concept is good enough, right? Like that's what you're showing. Like if you're a good composer, you don't have to play it, um, right? Like you, but you don't do have to, to oversee it as it's performed. Yeah, or the composers don't always, right? Like, you know, that's a conductor, yeah, right? Too, yeah, sure. right? But we tend, yeah. So we sort of credit a little bit of everyone, right? Um, so it's just sort of interesting, and it does change. Listen to like Rachmaninoff play. Okay, so then to make another comparison with art, yeah. What if artists just went around painting other artists' paintings, but they painted them really well? Would you still really like it? They'd have to paint them differently, right? Because I don't want to no, hear the no. same I mean, orchestra. Look, if an, if an orchestra plays a Rachmaninoff or, or a pianist plays a Rachmaninoff, you can still love it and the way that it's played. And yeah. he might put his own twist on it. Yeah. Probably no two pianists play it the same. But I, I feel like we judge <laughs> art completely differently than we judge music. I, if a painter well, I mean, did that with a Van Gogh, you'd be like, all right, dude, just move to China. What the, like work in a sweatshop <laughs> out there and knock them off all day long. I, <laughs> my, my mother is a painter as well, and she does a lot of work that is based on historically existing paintings, but she does change them. You know, she, yeah. she chops them up. She inserts things. She inserts sometimes herself. She inserts modern things into landscapes that are based on 19th century work. Um, she's inserted 19th century uh, images into famous 20th century images. Um, in the middle of a replica that she did of Jackson Pollock's Autumn, she put a work by a Hudson River Valley School artist, also called Autumn, so that the Pollock framed the other work in a way. So she's, she's saying these are two different artists looking at autumn and i brought them together how are they really all that different and it's surprising to see how the palette in, in jackson pollock's painting mimics the palette in a traditional uh landscape painter by yeah. the young day alden weir i think so i definitely think that um you know it's it's like the whole idea about richard prince for example are his marlboro men 
art? Are they just replicas of the Marlboro men? Are his, you know, sort of naughty nurse images? Are they billboard images or are they paintings now? I mean, they are done very well. They convince me, but um, something else I feel is going on there. I think, uh, but I mean, that takes it back to what, you know, Dave was saying before about abstract expressionism. Uh, people are still working in those styles. So in some ways, I feel current abstract expressionism, although the artists have their own ideas, they are kind of playing, if you will, with that type of imagery. They're kind of continuing it. It's a variation of it, if you will. It's a reinterpretation. So maybe, that, maybe that's somewhat different, but... To me, that would be yeah. Rough. They're part of a tradition, and they're they're renewing that tradition with their yeah. own ideas and inspirations. I love that idea because that was one of my questions earlier: was does everything have to be novel? I don't like the idea of never being able to really respond to the past in a way that creates a connection. I like both. I like tradition, and I like novelty, and I like the idea of you know reinventing old ideas because i yeah. mean there i'm not going to say absolutely there aren't any great new ideas but most of the great ideas are really old ideas and well, we yeah, need to bring them back to groups. life so that we stay in touch with our humanity if we lose the go the great old ideas well i don't I, I don't know where we're going but no i'd agree with that i mean i think recontextualizing ideas too is really important and and reusing that but then that comes back to you just have to add a commentary to it right i mean with a lot of these music and classical music the presentation and the creation were almost separate things whereas with a lot of the art we're trying to compare to the presentation is almost the creation right yeah. so so, I mean, that's part of the problem. And then we we're talking about conceptual art where it's instructions, which is more similar to classical music composure where, oh, here, you know, so, I mean, there are, you know, you can fall into like problems with analogy pretty quickly just because they're different types of media. But no, I agree with you. Like, I, I was with you, Richard. We went to the Philadelphia Museum of Art for that wild exhibition, the Nichols photography exhibition. Yeah, it was and so I just, wild. <laughs> and I just did a series of like multiple exposures where I took photos of the photographs there just to riff on it, which I thought was sort of fun, like just to like play with. Yeah, because it was way more wild than the wild exhibition. Yeah, it was called wild, but as far as photography it was goes, so tame. It, was, it was very tame. Yeah. So I was like, can we make these images look wilder? Um, yeah. Um, no, I, so I'm all about that. But I think, I think our notions of, of the value in the concept really started. I mean, I, I'm not going to say absolutely it started. I think people have always valued novelty and new ideas, but with romanticism and the idea that the artist had to be original mm -hmm. uh, and sort of create something out of themselves. Um, it really has made a huge impact and and left its mark and we were we're still you know living out the consequences of that right That's, yeah and maybe that in and of itself should be the subject of uh, another one of these talks romanticism well the idea of the the the, the concept that you were talking about about the the artist and identity i mean i feel like we've touched upon that uh, you know, in, in other talks, but maybe that could be its own sort of subject. Okay. 
Yeah, well, that's what we'll do next week. Like, how how much does the uh, does the artist expect to own what he does or she does, or and how much are they willing to let go and be like, this is completed by the viewer in some way? All right. Yeah, I yeah. think that's a great idea. I already have some ideas for that. And no, I, I think that's good too. I also love discussions about deconstructionism, and I think that fits in there. So. David, okay. I'm going to need you to define for our listeners deconstruction because we use that word a lot here. So, oh, I mean, the the really basic, like, quick way is that like you should evaluate things not based on any sort of context, but on that thing itself is the easiest way to put that okay. forward. So, like, things should be evaluated just basically on quote face value, like that history and context shouldn't be considered. Okay. Good. All right. I think it's good to know. All right. Thank, thanks for listening to Brickyard Composition with uh, Richard, Dave, and David.